We come to the book of Judges tonight. And the book of Judges is, well, we'll start the way we normally do. What do you know about the book of Judges? What's in it? What's it about? If you watch the Bible Project, you can't answer until everybody else has answered. <laughs> yeah. I think the only story that I always think about is the one where the one general of the bad army gets a tent post through Yes, the tent peg through the head. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's with the, the whole Deborah and Barack story. Yeah, very. Yep, <laughs> Jair. I can't remember if he's the guy who got the tent. Jl. Jl and Cicero. Cicero, that's right. Thank you. Cicero yep, Jl. Cicero got the tent peg. <laughs> so Jl is the the lady who put the tent peg through Cicero's head. Yeah, that's a gruesome story. I did a chapel talk at CVCA on that story. That was horrible. It really was a bad talk. Don't go find it in the archives. <laughs> well, isn't a big part of that story that the men were not doing what they were... They, they weren't leading, and the women kind of had to step in and take over. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Deborah, and Deborah even got on Brock. Brock, do your job. Step up and do this. This is yours to do. And, and JL also stepping up and, and bringing that justice. Yeah, absolutely. In my head, Judges is a lot of like, and it got worse, and it got worse, mm-hmm. and God is still there, but it kept getting worse, and there's also Samson and Delilah in there. Yes, <laughs> and there's also Samson and Delilah, that's right. Um, no, I, I, you, you did this. That cyclical pattern is crucial to the book of Judges. And you're right, the overall trajectory is downward into just depths of depravity. Yeah, absolutely. It's like Israel wanting a king, but really not getting a king, and not doing the God of their king, so judges were sent, and they weren't enough, and so they ever wanted a king. I don't know if they're, ju- if they're begging for kings yet, but they are definitely not obeying the authority that's there, and the book does point out that they didn't have a king. So yes, that's the right ballpark. Um, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I don't remember it specifically saying that the people were begging for a king like their neighbors. Um, I think that comes later. Um. But definitely, I think that that cyclical pattern is basically God gives them a some sort of a you know helper mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be able to point them in the right direction and you know kind of be their warrior for them. And mm-hmm. As soon as they die, everything goes. And crumbles, and then okay, well, there's another person. Then. Yeah, yeah. Continue mm-hmm. to see without God being there to lead. How quickly mm-hmm. everything goes. That's right. And I think it's really helpful that you point out as soon as the judge died, they just nose dived into apostasy every time. And it's interesting. I was learning this through the study this week. Uh, there was never, as far as we know, a nationwide judge. They were always local to specific tribes. So the stories that we get snapshots of here were local stories. So there was no universal ruler over the nation except for whom? God himself. Right? And that's the goal is that God himself would be their king and would be their, and we'll see at the end of the book, it's begging for Israel to have the righteous king and to follow him. Uh, and so that's really what this book is uh, getting us to anticipate. Okay, Bible Project people, what else is going on in the book of Judges? <laughs> um. Well, I actually had a different question, but sure. um, the, knowing that they're local judges, uh, does that mean some of them could have overlapped in time, or were they pretty much sequential? 
Uh, they could have overlapped. Yeah, I think uh, some people think maybe some were overlapping. I couldn't tell you um, who was what. Uh, I believe there's a backside here. So if you look at the... Um, oh, this actually doesn't say how many years... No, I think it does. The, I think it's implied there. The very last column, the years of peace, I believe uh, kind of implies, maybe not entirely, but the, the effect of that judge's rule is this many years of peace. Othniel, 40 years of peace. I don't know if that means he judged for 40 years. Uh, Ehud for 80 years. Probably didn't um, judge the full 80 years. Maybe, maybe he did. Um, so with those lengths of time, there probably were some overlap if they were actually if they actually did judge for that extent of time. Um, but a lot of them judged for much shorter periods. So, so, um, but the effect there, I guess, of the piece would be longer. Yeah, that's it's, it's a good question. I don't know the, the timeline there of, of how long they were each judging. This covers the 400-year period between the conquest of the land and the kingdom period. So this is what Norm was getting at, the anticipation of uh, the king to be set up over the land. Uh, now that we know the whole story of the Bible, we know that's coming. This kind of fills that void between when they got there and when the kings were set up. They had conquered and settled the promised land, and so Judges is about how the Israelites lived in that land without a king, becoming almost entirely Canaanite in their rebellion against God. The Israelites became almost entirely Canaanite. In, the, in the, their time there in the land. The judges were people raised up by God for the purpose of delivering his people from their enemies who were oppressing them. So God graciously brought judges in to, live, to uh, lead them, to deliver them from specific oppressors. Open up to Joshua 23. Second to last chapter of Joshua. Joshua 23, verses 11 through 16 are crucially foundational. I'll go ahead and read those. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. That's ominous especially when you realize what goes on in the book of Judges and you realize they intermarry and they mix with the people of the land and they do not put aside those gods and they do not worship God alone. And Joshua warned them, you know, the goal was for us to eradicate these, these nations and they've not been eradicated, so they remain. So you have to be super careful not to intermix with them. And yet they did. And of course, this is not a, a racial discussion. This is a religion discussion. 
This is a discussion of their allegiances to false gods and what that does to, um, to the worship of the one true God. A couple of the Sunday school stories, y'all have already given your answers. These are the ones I thought of. Ehud, the left-handed judge. Sinister. Yeah, sinister hand, that's right. Um, who, um, why do I, Eglon is the name of the, the king he killed with his, uh, his dagger sank into his fat and killed him. It's, it's really a, just a gruesome story if you go read it and talking about relieving himself in the chambers and the guards were embarrassed because he was in there so long and they, and they go in and they find him and it's, details are crazy. And then there's Shamgar who killed hundreds, I think, with an ox goad. Like, that's a, that's a good name for a son right there, Shamgar. Shamgar. Oh, I wasn't looking at you on, on purpose. <laughs> uh, there's Deborah and Barak. We've mentioned that it also includes the story of Jael and Sisera. We have Gideon, Wimpy Gideon, as many of us know him, and Samson, the fascinating judge. Okay, authorship of this book is unknown. Its final form was likely composed late in the period of the kings, probably in Judah in the late 8th century B.C., so this would be um, about two, three, four hundred years after some of the events. Um, here's the general structure and outline. So uh, the first two chapters are prologues. So after Joshua, the, um, the conquest after Joshua. So there's Israel's perspective of how the conquest went, and then there's the divine perspective of how the conquest went. We're going to get into a little bit of the divine perspective, and you'll see... Uh, how God uh, sees their um, unfaithfulness. I'll just use that word. And then chapters 3 through 16, these are the judge cycles. And that's where you can see the table on the reverse. So the table on the back really kind of summarizes for you uh, these cycles. And this table is really helpful because it gives you specific phrases that are used repetitively in these stories to show you the cycle pattern. And it checks off in each column when these specific phrases are used in which stories. So Shamgar was just a really, really short mention in one verse. And that's why you don't see the full uh, cycle mentioned there. But you got these others, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak. And they'll say specifically, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the fourth column. And then the Lord's anger is provoked and an enemy oppresses them. And then Israel cries out to the Lord. And the Lord hears their cry and provides a Savior. And the Lord chooses and empowers the Savior by the Spirit. And then the oppressor submits, followed by a period of peace under the judge. And then the deliverer dies. That cycle, you can see how repetitive that is. Of course, it's not every single one, and not every single element is present in every single one. But that gives you an idea of the cycle that they went through. So that's chapters 3 through 16. And then the last few chapters, the last handful there, chapters 17 through 21, these are two epilogues. And this just shows you how far Israel has fallen into apostasy. They talk about the apostasy in Dan and then strife with Benjamin in the, the last three chapters. So that's the major structure. Open up to Judges chapter 2. In the ESV here, Judges chapter 2 is titled, Israel's Disobedience. So what has gone on is um, they didn't drive out the nations. They lived among them, they married with them, and they assimilated their religion. So uh, chapter 2, verse 5. 
Um, that is not the right verse. Yeah, I see a 2.11 there. There was one in particular I was trying to find. Oh, it is, it's actually the first five verses. I think we'll look there before we look at verse 11. Um, this is God's response to the fact that Israel has not driven out the other nations. Uh, it says, now the angel of the Lord, this, is, this angel of the Lord discussion is, is just really interesting. Uh, we'll get to that. The angel of the Lord went up from Gil, Gilgal to, to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. You recognize that language? Joshua 23. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They seem to have just uh, kind of embraced it, say, yeah, this is, we've done this, and they wept for it, and they sacrificed to the Lord, and uh, they can't say, God, this is unjust, because this is exactly what was promised. And then what happens then again in verse 11 after Joshua dies? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to read verses here, 11 through 19. And I want you to see the pattern. It sets up this pattern uh, that we're going to see through the rest of the book. So follow along here. Um, Judges 2, starting in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That is the gods of the land. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. I just want to point out as we go through this, every time Lord is in there in all capitals, you know this, that it's the name of Yahweh, and that makes this very personal. They have forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They've forsaken this personal God and went after other gods just generic gods, and they bow down to them. So, verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But... Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. We'll stop there. That sets up the pattern. There's the problem. They keep turning away. God keeps providing somebody for them to follow who will lead them, who will conquer their enemies. But they don't follow. And then when the judge dies, they don't follow even more. Yes. 
It's a great question. It, what, the question is, what is what was the role of the judges? What was it more like? That's a good question. I don't know how to compare it. Um, I've always thought a combination of a commander and um, kind of a spiritual guide of a sort, even though the, they still had the, the Levites. Um, so almost a, a Moses figure, but also kind of a, a commander as well. That's kind of how I've understood it. And I feel like each one of them, I mean, their stories are so different yes. in ways that mm-hmm. they kind of mm-hmm. are risen up to that position in different ways and yeah. they serve different functions because of different people. Things. Yes. That's absolutely right. And th- there are different functions. Deborah served as a, a judge, as an minister of justice. Uh, and, and I think in, in many of these cases, again, as I've gone through this before, um, back when, when we were at CVCA, the, the point was to show in each of these cases how insufficient the judge is and how sufficient Christ is. So in all the insufficiencies and various insufficiencies in various roles and various functions, Christ is sufficient. So I, I, that doesn't directly answer your question with satisfactory answer, but I think there's problem. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. So there, there's the pattern. Uh, I think I think that's a really helpful passage. We're going to look at another one here in chapter three in a minute, uh, a specific example. But that's what we expect to see here in the book. And then at the very end of the cha- of the book, we're not going to spend time there, but chapter 17 through 21, is just those two epilogues again that reemphasize how pagan Israel has become by telling about their wickedness in two accounts. So those are just a couple key passages that came from the, the Matt Bradley handout. So let's look at this pattern that they have fallen into, the nation of Israel. Apostasy, servitude, supplication, and salvation. You got to love the alliteration. Overall downward trajectory, as Amy said early on, overall downward trajectory from cycle to cycle. Let's look at the example in Judges 3. This is Othniel, the first judge. And the people of Israel, this is chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You hear that line a lot in this book. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. I'm not going to try to say that. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over the king of Mesopotamia. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Did you see those phrases pop up in repetition? Well, not, they're not repeated in here, but they will be repeated throughout the book. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and they are given over to their enemies. Then they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. Israel was relatively obedient until he died, and then Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. That's the cyclical pattern. The end of this pattern... The downward trajectory goes down and down and down and down. You see it in chapter 17, verse 6, and then in the very last verse of this whole book, 
tells you the direction of the heart of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That, I hope that when you hear that verse and that, that, that phrase, you go, oof, because that hits home. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is not just true of our nation. That is true of us. That is, tr- that is the temptation of mankind since the very beginning. Adam and Eve did what was right in their own eyes. And so you're seeing the sinfulness of humanity here in the book of Judges. And there was no king in Israel, we're reminded. Which is uh, part of why it makes sense that this uh, would have been written later in the context of the kingdom, being written to people saying, but remember, there's no king yet. Uh, because it's written from a context of having the king, uh, having a monarchy for at least 100 years at that point, around the time this book was written. And that ends the book as well. There's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's look at that very, very last verse in the book. Judges 21, verse 25. So when you, I know we haven't looked at every chapter and every story in here, and nor will we be able to, but when you hear that the overall cycles here are apostasy, the Lord delivering, apostasy, they turn away, they turn away, they turn away, and then it gets so bad that the book ends with two examples of how bad it's gotten. And then this is the last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What hope is left? What hope is left? Any shots at answering that one? Christ and yeah. all of these people again from the beginning all the way through even leading you know the same cycle happens and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. for a second Samuel all mm-hmm. the way through you know, mm-hmm. whatever king they choose never did that's hugely helpful because I think the, the unspoken assumption here is that we need a king there's no king in Israel that's part of why this is such a problem we need a king but you just got to the point that even these kings that do come they're insufficient. Saul is entirely insufficient. He's elected the way we elect politicians. Handsome, handsome tall and handsome. Can, can woo a crowd. Um, what does that say about our choice of presidents recently? <laughs> Ultimately, you're absolutely right. This is telling us we need not just a king. We need the king. We need the righteous king. And we can't do what's right in our eyes. We need to do what's right in his eyes. And we need him to be a leader that will never die. We need a king with a dominion that will never end, an eternal ruler, like we heard from Daniel 7 this morning. This kingdom that will never cease, an authority that will never die. All this is showing us the need that we have for the righteous king to rule over Israel. And Israel would submit to the king and do what is right in his eyes. And though... Uh, Each judge is a type of Christ that is uh, a precursor to show Christ as the fuller example of who they are um, prefiguring. Though each judge is that type of Christ delivering his people, the fact that they keep dying, how dare they, and often are quite sinful themselves, highlights the fact that the one true judge and deliverer of Israel is yet to come. He can't be a mere mortal. He can't be even King David. 
a man after God's own heart. Yet we see so much about who Jesus is in King David. So it's almost like we're getting closer, but, but he, even he's not enough, not even close. <clears throat> All right, thoughts on this before we get to really the, like the, the pastoral punch for why, like what's going on here. Thoughts on just kind of the general trajectory of the book. conquest of the land is spiritual. The whole uh, directing of Israel being in the land is indicative of the spiritual realities of believers. And so the fact that they were unwilling to do what was really hard and eradicate these enemies is indicative of our inability on our own to eradicate um, the evil in our lives. Um, these these leaders led them, yes, in physical victories, but as you said, they're very intricately woven with that spiritual victory of eradicating the, the pagan gods. And so um, it really does seem that as these judges brought physical, you know, military victories, first of all, that's in the context of all of this being a spiritual discussion, but also um, that is a spiritual victory because Israel seemed to obey the Lord more in that time. Uh, and then when they died, they returned to even deeper apostasy. Uh, so I would say yes, but also you, you can't you can't really divorce the spiritual from the the physical context of what's going on here. Uh, and that's that gets back to what we were talking about last week with the importance of the land being the guarantee of the inheritance of believers. And it's not just that specific crop of land in the Middle East; it's the whole world, which Christ comes and reigns. And so, because Christ's victory is both physical and spiritual. Christ's victory is comprehensive. And this is kind of a snapshot of that, um, of what we're looking for in that true ultimate deliverer. Both physical and spiritual. Okay. Um, here I have once again... Nancy Guthrie's study. I, I went through the judges study again this week. It's, it's really, really good. If you've not gotten it yet I, and you're interested, I'd say get it. Nancy Guthrie, this is uh, the son of David seeing Jesus in the historical books. Okay. I went through the, the study again and she does a really good job of kind of breaking 
the specific elements of what we learn from the judges into characteristics that we need from Christ. And so you'll see that starting at the bottom of that middle column there. It says we need Jesus, and these are the ways that we need him. First of all, we need a deliverer from our incomplete obedience. At the beginning of Judges in chapter 1, it talks about, like we had heard in the book of Joshua, how Israel had not done what they were supposed to do. I'd actually recommend you flip over to chapters 1 and 2 as we go through these. You can skim through verses 19 through 30. And there are so many cases where it talks about, but they didn't drive out uh, the opponents. Like we saw in in Joshua last week. We went through and, and itemized those. Chapter 3, verse 5 gives us a summary of it. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. We need a deliverer who will deliver us from our incomplete obedience because you and I will never completely obey Jesus. We will never completely obey God's law, the Mosaic law. We, we won't. And we need somebody who will save us from that inability. We also see that we need somebody to deliver us from our ignorance. I love this one because it gives you just a really uh, humble view of what's going on in Israel at this time. Chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What does that tell you that they have not done as a people? The Shema. That's it, yeah. They have not taught them to their, to their... They don't speak of them when they rise and when they sit. They're not written on the doorpost of their home. They have failed to obey, and therefore the next generation doesn't know. The consequences of sin are deep and grave, and we need a deliverer from our ignorance. When we don't remember all that God has done, and we have not faithfully taught it to the next generation, we need a deliverer who can save us even from that. And then our own idolatry in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we see the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. Again, this is, they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Our idolatry provokes the Lord to anger. Our idolatry is adultery. And uh, one commentator, I, I, was, I don't even remember where I heard this, but can you imagine a husband who just lets his wife cheat on him? Eh, whatever. What kind of relationship is that? God is jealous for his people. God has a covenant love for his people that he will, he will hunt them down like Hosea did. And he will love them uh, incredibly uh, and patiently. And so our idolatry angers him, and that's a good thing. That means he loves his people. And of course, we don't mean anger in the selfish passion, like uh, uncontrollable base desires we talk about that we feel this is a godly anger, a justified anger. And then we, uh, so we need Jesus to deliver us from our idolatry. We need a savior, and we need to deliver from our enemies. This one seems uh, a little bit too basic to say, but uh, verses 13 through 15 talks about plunderers 
who plundered them. And the people of Israel were sold into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so they couldn't any longer withstand their enemies. And the Lord, and even the hand of the Lord was against them, as the Lord had warned them, and as he had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. We need a deliverer from our enemies. And God is the one who delivered us from our enemies, our plunderer, the, the, the evil one who would like to see us die. Uh, we need a delivery from our increasing corruption. You see this in verses 18 and 19. We just get, it seems we just get more and more wicked. Of course, um, wickedness just takes different forms. The intention of man's heart has been corrupt from early on, but verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Imagine that, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. Uh, we need to deliver from our inadequate repentance. Uh, and this comes from the fact that we don't even see change in their lives. Like, do you see change? Is any, are they actually repenting when they turn back to the Lord? Repentance includes that um, turning from and turning to. It includes a confession. Um, and, and of course, uh, maybe you've heard the saying, we have to repent of our repentance. Our repentance is never enough to actually justify our forgiveness. So we need forgiveness for even the ways that we repent, and the Lord is gracious in doing that. And so we see that we need somebody who can help us when we don't even repent the right way. That's what we need to deliver from. So we need a king to rule over us. Um, we need a king to make us right in God's eyes, and we need the judge that doesn't fail. Um, let me see if I can give you one little snippet here, and then I'll, I'll try to... Wrap it up for the sake of your time. Um, in the end, we see that all the inadequacies, again, this is from Guthrie. In the end, we see that all the inadequacies of the judges in the book of Judges serve to reveal to us the excellencies of our true Savior, Deliverer, or King. Listen to the story about Ehud. Um, Ehud was a fearless warrior who had a message for the king of Moab that was delivered in the form of a sword thrust into his belly. Jesus, too, is a fearless warrior who has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's Colossians 2. How did he overcome the powers of darkness? Not by thrusting a sword into anyone, but by being nailed to a cross, by having a sword thrust into his side. What about Gideon? What do we learn about uh, Jesus through Gideon? Gideon said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Judges 6, 15. But it was actually Gideon's weakness that made him the perfect person to accomplish God's purpose, which was to point to the greater, the greater Savior, whom God would send. To fight the greatest battle of all time, Jesus became weak. He became vulnerable to death. Under Gideon, God reduced the number of troops needed to accomplish a victory over his enemies to only 300 men. But eventually, God reduced his fighting force to only one man. Paul writes that God defeated his enemy and made it possible for us to live in triumph over sin and death through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's out of Romans 5. And then here, let's look at Samson. In the final climactic, climactic moment of Samson's life, Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple to Dagon, the Philistines' God, where he was chained and he was being made a spectacle of mockery. And to defeat the enemies of the people of God required the death of Samson as the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Judges 16. 
So Samson killed a lot of people during his life, but in that one moment where he pushed the pillar down, he killed more people in that moment than he had killed in his whole life. In this way, Samson foreshadowed our greater Savior Jesus. He too was handled, handed over and bound by Gentile oppressors and mocked as helpless. He too accomplished the deliverance of God's people by his own death. And you can look in the book of Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 19 and see that Jesus will return as a judge who will not fail with all authority and will vindicate uh, his people and will crush wickedness. So, oh, we didn't get to the angel of the Lord. Let's look at the angel of the Lord really quickly. Um, Judges chapter 13. I thought this was fascinating. The angel of the Lord has already shown up a couple times uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in, uh, in Samson's birth in chapter 13. And then in Judges chapter 13, there is this fascinating story. Judges 13, verses 20 through 23. So you've got Manoah, who took a young goat, in verse 19. Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And here it is. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt would, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced us such things as these. And then Samson was born. Fascinating appearance of, of Jesus here uh, in the Old Testament. Another Christophany. Um, they have seen God, and he has gone up to heaven as a pleasing aroma, if you will, uh, in this offering to God, as Christ alone was that pleasing aroma who could, um, in a sacrifice, pay for sins. Um, so I just thought that was uh, that was a cool discovery for me as I was studying. You can read the important lessons um, on your own. Are there any uh, final questions, thoughts, comments? Is Samuel the last judge? Technically, Samson. Samuel. Samuel. Oh, 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 yeah. Um. Let's see when we get there. <laughs> yeah. All right, let me pray, and then we'll sing uh, one last song. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you know how to work with sinful, corrupt people, that you are patient, that you are good, and that you have offered and you have accomplished what we can't on our own. So we thank you for Jesus, who is the ultimate judge. We thank you for those judges that you sent for Israel and that in your plan, this was how you would bring redemption to your people. We pray that uh, these things would uh, go with us and not be mere facts, but that we would uh, also, as we hear your word more and more, respond to it in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.